Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. There have been almost countless articles of late about the rise of authoritarian regimes. And one aspect of all these regimes is, even as we're starting to see here in America, the dramatic increase in corruption. Fueled by money laundering, drugs, and all manner of crimes upon the public, the level of corruption extracts a higher and higher toll on the lives of citizens. Perhaps nowhere in contemporary times was this worse than in Colombia in the 1990s and the 2000s. Amidst a complicated and murky civil war, drug cartels, and unrestrained violence, the country literally came apart. What exactly happened, where it stands today, and what we can learn from it is the subject of a new work by my guest, Maria McFarlane Sanchez Moreno. She is the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance and for 13 years held several positions at Human Rights Watch, including as the organization's co-director of its U.S. programs. It is my pleasure to welcome Maria McFarlane Sanchez Moreno here to talk about her new book, There Are No Dead Here, a story of murder and denial in Colombia. Maria, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. I want to go back 20 years or so and talk a little bit about how this civil war came to be in Colombia and give our listeners a little bit of history about it. Well, it actually started even earlier than that. Uh, the latest war started in the 1960s. And uh, it, it involved the left-wing guerrillas of the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, who were Marxist guerrillas who wanted to take over the state, um, as well as various other left-wing guerrilla groups, um, and uh, fighting against the Colombian military. Over time, other groups appeared, known as paramilitaries, who worked closely with landowners, and it turned out with uh, major drug traffickers, to protect their interests and uh, and fight against the FARC. Um, but uh, as my book starts to explain, the paramilitaries were deeply involved in drug trafficking themselves and, uh, like the guerrillas, were uh, responsible for horrific atrocities. It wasn't even clear sometimes which side the, the paramilitary, the right-wing paramilitary groups were on, other than that they're other than their own. Yeah, I mean, the, the military in Colombia, important sectors of the military worked closely with the paramilitaries because they portrayed themselves as this counterinsurgent force. Um, and yet, at the same time, they were allied with uh, important people in the business world. So in some sectors, they, they worked more as private armies. And over time, it became very clear that they had become in the late 90s, the country's biggest drug traffickers, taking the reins of the drug business after Pablo Escobar was killed. And by then, they really were just about controlling territory um, for, for profit so that they could control drug trafficking routes, uh, coca production, and, um, you know, reap more profits. And as they became more powerful and controlled more territory, as you say, what impact did it have on the underlying ideological battle between the FARC and the government? Well, I think the ideological battle got distorted as early as the 70s and 80s when drug trafficking became so big in Colombia um, and when the war on drugs uh, really took off in the United States, especially during Reagan. Uh, because 
you know, prohibition ended up fueling this enormously profitable illicit market in drugs. Uh, and both the FARC and the paramilitaries became involved in it. Uh, and it gave them resources to do what they wanted to do, maybe to pursue their ideological goals. But over time, it also became an end in, in itself. Uh, so even the FARC, uh, which has recently entered a peace deal with the government, has factions that have not wanted to demobilize and that will likely stay active in part because they want to continue involved in the drug business. So again, those ideological motives got seriously distorted uh, as a result of, of the drug trade and ultimately of prohibition. And to what extent was FARC relying on the drug trade as a source of, of economic support for them at some point? No, it was. The FARC has for years uh, been involved in taxing, uh, you know, taxing in quotation marks, um, taxing uh, production of coca and controlling territory where people were cultivating coca crops and maybe in some cases forcing people to grow coca. And apparently they got involved in, in the trade itself as well. So um, they turned into players in the drug trade. No question about it. Talk about how the violence escalated to the point where by the late 90s it was, was absolutely out of control. Well, uh, the, on the one hand, the FARC um, over time started using uh, all sorts of horrific tactics, you know, recruiting children as combatants, uh, frequently kidnapping people for ransom. A lot of Americans are familiar with the kidnapping for political purposes of prominent political leaders uh, like Ingrid Betancourt. Uh, who was held for years. But, uh, but the reality is that the FARC was also kidnapping hundreds or even thousands of people just for ransom to make money, um, using anti-personnel landmines, which left lots of Colombians without limbs, uh, innocent Colombians who just lived near, near where they were putting landmines. Um, meanwhile, the paramilitaries in the late 90s began, began this aggressive expansion campaign. And... Um, their way of operating was to spread terror. So they wanted to take over a town, and what they would do is they would come in, uh, force all the townspeople out onto the town square, and then commit a gruesome massacre, you know, cutting limbs off people, torturing them in front of their family members, raping women in front of their family members, uh, killing children, and... Um, and they would go town after town. And of course, whenever one of these massacres would happen um, afterwards, the, the whole community would flee and become forcibly displaced and, and end up moving to the slums on the edges of major cities. So they took over control of um, large parts of the country through this uh, uh, terror. And, uh, and that in turn allowed them to, gain tremendous power in other ways, uh, including politically. Talk about the links with respect to corruption and the drug trade in particular between the paramilitary groups and the government. Well, uh, as the paramilitaries expanded, you know, they had always worked closely with sectors of the military and other parts of the government that were sympathetic to them or that thought they were useful tools in fighting the guerrillas. Um, but uh, as they became more powerful players locally and regionally, they began to have the capacity to control 
the way people voted or to uh, commit fraud in elections. And that meant that many aspiring politicians decided to collude with them uh, to commit electoral fraud and, and uh, get, let, so, so to say, elected um, by working with the paramilitaries. And um, one of the, the main stories that I talk about in the book is the story of Ivan Velazquez, who was a, an assistant justice on the Supreme Court in 2005. The Supreme Court had jurisdiction to investigate the Colombian Congress. And one day, Ivan receives a complaint um, from a concerned citizen who says, look, the paramilitaries who are supposedly negotiating for peace with the government are saying that they have friends in a third of the Colombian Congress. Please investigate. And Ivan very bravely decided to dig into it and started finding evidence that, in fact, the paramilitaries did have um, friends in Congress. And he ended up uh, being able to charge and uh, in most cases convict about a third of Colombia's Congress for uh, collusion with the paramilitaries. In one case, one of the senators was actually convicted of murder. Talk a little bit about others, and, and you really detail three in the course of There Are No Dead here, others that stood up to this, that tried to bring worldwide attention to this. Yeah, so one of the first characters in my book is uh, a man called Jesus Maria Valle, who was a human rights activist in Medellin, um, had been very devoted to the cause. He'd taken over um, directing a human rights organization in Medellin in the 80s after three of its directors had been murdered in quick succession. So this was a very brave man, um, very committed, uh, much loved by uh, poor people around the city, um, and in his home region of Ituango, which was a rural region of Antioquia, the state that Medellin is the capital of. Um, and he, in the late 90s, started receiving reports from community members in Ituango who were telling him, look, paramilitaries are coming to our town, they're killing people, uh, and the military is there and, and does nothing, or in some cases seems to be collaborating with them. And Valle started speaking up about this and demanding action from the government. He went to, this, to the governor, uh, a man called Alvaro Uribe at the time, asked for, for him to take steps to stop the paramilitaries and address the links with the military. He went to the army uh, itself, to the 4th Brigade. He went to the police. Um, he went to the media and he talked very publicly about all these things. And he was repeatedly ignored. Um, and that's one of the themes of the book, just the, the society's denial of what was happening uh, right in front of their noses. And um, Valle uh, eventually, um, you know, really ramped up his, his um, uh, allegations and uh, was especially angered after a major massacre happened in Ituanco. Um, and after that, uh, he became even more vocal, and eventually he was murdered for his allegations. And talk about what we know about his murder, because it's also a big subject of what you talk about in the book. Yeah, I mean, we know the bare facts. We know that uh, it, the murder happened after the army had, a member of the army had sued him for defamation. Um, and in fact, I think it happened the day after or two days after he testified in that case and repeated his allegations about links between the military um, and the paramilitaries. Uh, we know that um, a man called, well, 
one of the former paramilitaries who I interviewed uh, over email, um, a very senior level paramilitary commander called Don Berna, um, told prosecutors a few years ago that the person who ordered Valle's murder was in fact the right-hand man of the governor at the time. So um, the person who allegedly ordered the murder was a man called Pedro Juan Moreno, who was the chief of staff for uh, then-Governor Alvaro Uribe. Uh, that hasn't been uh, investigated, as far as I know. Um, Pedro Juan Moreno was killed uh, or died in, in a helicopter crash in 2005. Um, there have been allegations around that being potentially being foul play. Uh, but um, that nobody, as far as I know, has looked into the allegations that Moreno ordered Valle's death. What I know is that other paramilitaries confirmed to me that Pedro Juan Moreno was, in fact, very close to the paramilitaries themselves, that he met with them regularly. So, so that adds some more validity to the um, allegations. And what do we know about the former president, Uribe, and his involvement? Yeah, so the... You know, the governor of Antioquia was Uribe, and he later became president in, in uh, 2002 and was extremely popular, um, but also uh, has been surrounded by scandals because so many people close to him, including the members of Congress who were investigated and, and convicted, have been uh, convicted in many cases of, of ties with paramilitaries. Um, Uribe... Uh, was no longer governor. He'd been out of the governorship for a couple of months when when Valle was murdered. Um, but we know that Valle had complained to him about the links with the between the military and the paramilitaries. We know that um, one witness says that um, uh, that Valle directly spoke to Uribe about this, and that Uribe uh, said Valle should be sued for defamation. Um, and and we know that Pedro Juan Moreno, the person who allegedly ordered by his death, was extremely close to it even, was his right-hand man. There have been no specific allegations that I know of uh, against Uribe uh, in connection with Valle's murder. Um, but I think in general, one thing that Uribe needs to clarify is how it's possible that so many people who have been extremely close to him, his chief of staff in Antioquia, and later on, um, the head of his intelligence service, multiple members of Congress, his cousin, his security chief as president, and you know, many others have turned out to have worked very, very closely with the paramilitaries. And this is, you know, coming in an administration where the president prided himself in being incredibly knowledgeable about all the details of his administration and what was going on around him. Mm -hmm. So how is it possible that all of this was happening right under his noses and, and he didn't put a stop to it? And tell us a little bit about Ricardo Calderon, who was a journalist who has been for years looking into this and trying to uncover more about what went on here. So Ricardo Calderon is the third character in my book, and he is uh, the quintessential you know, investigative journalist who just cares about looking for news and telling the truth and exposing things very, very uh, modest. Uh, he's received numerous awards over the years uh, and basically throws them into the fireplace because he doesn't care about them. Um, but he 
uh, always writes these uh, incredible stories in Semana Ma- News Magazine, which is the country's biggest uh, news magazine, unsigned, um, and has ca- shed uh, a huge amount of light on the links between paramilitaries and the state. Um, so early on, he uh, got to know, because he was documenting paramilitary massacres in the 90s, um, the paramilitary started calling him and saying, no, you need to correct this, you need to correct that, that's not how it happened. And of course, he would never correct anything unless it actually needed correction. Um, But he started to meet with them and became surprised early on when in his visits to paramilitary campsites, uh, he started seeing senior government officials pop up or members of the intelligence service. And that got him started thinking that um, the links with the government were much wider than than people had expected, that it wasn't just the military, but that that, that other officials were involved. Um, over time, he exposed a big scandal about um, the intelligence service and how paramilitaries had infiltrated it. And um, when President Uribe in 2007 started attacking Ivan Velasquez, the assistant justice on the Supreme Court, who was investigating the, para- the paramilitaries links to Congress, um, when Uribe started attacking this justice, Calderón uh, started looking into what was going on there, and he discovered that paramilitaries had been entering the presidential palace, um, supposedly to offer evidence that could be used to frame Velasquez for various you know, false, made-up offenses. Um, so basically there was a, a, a sort of conspiracy going on between paramilitaries and people in the office of the president to smear Velasquez. How did this all begin to, how did the violence and the rest of it begin to wind down? Well, you know, it's not that the violence is exactly um, wound down. We're going through a period of transition. But starting in around 2002, we started to see, uh, on the one hand, Uribe did put a lot more resources into the military, and the U.S. put a lot of resources into the Colombian military through Plan Colombia. And that meant that the military started pushing the FARC out of many regions where they were operating. They didn't go after the paramilitaries, um, and that's a big uh, thing to question about U.S. the U.S. war on drugs in Colombia is why were they only investing in the FARC, and they were, in fact, putting money into the military, which was working with the biggest drug traffickers in the country, the paramilitaries. But, you know, setting that aside, they did push the FARC out of many regions, and that led to a reduction in kidnappings, which a lot of people were very upset about. And they took over control of the highways. You know, they started doing these caravans across the country that helped people feel safe. Um, The paramilitaries, meanwhile, had expanded pretty dramatically. And once they had completed their expansion campaign, they decided just to focus on maintaining control. And when you're in a period of maintaining control and you're not competing over territory, violence naturally declines. Um, In particular regions, you did see violence uh, surface again whenever there were turf battles, for example, between paramilitary factions. Um, But, you know, ever so the, the peak of the violence has, you know, declined as a result of both of those things over time. But we still see a great deal of violence that's not as visible as it once was. It's not the flashy kidnappings of politicians. 
but you see just in the last year dozens of community leaders, human rights activists being killed, apparently because of uh, desire to control territory in the aftermath of the FARC peace process. So uh, as the FARC is leaving areas that it once controlled, um, many other groups who want to remain involved in the drug business are stepping in to fill their shoes. And when that happens, you have uh, more violence and more pressure. So um, I think it's a matter of um, degree and it's not something that you can say where you can say it's ended in any conclusive way. I think it's going to continue. What is your sense of how this is going to continue to play out? Well, I think that, uh, for one, I think it made a huge difference that uh, the three characters in my book spoke out the way they did and that they did have an impact and that ultimately the country does know so much more about the impact of uh, the way paramilitaries worked with the government because many Colombians now can no longer deny that reality in the way that they used to and they have to grapple with what that means. Um, however, I think that over the long term, the country is going to continue having some serious problems because we still have prohibition. We still have a big illicit market in drugs. And that means there are always going to be armed actors who want to step in and control that market and profit from it. And that means they're going to keep having the resources that the paramilitaries have had um, to corrupt officials. And and to secure their own impunity. So I think Colombia is going to continue having major ch challenges with that because no matter how much money you pour into law enforcement and, and the rule of law um, and the military, that's all going to get eroded um, because of the brutality and power to corrupt of these groups. So we need to have a, a, a larger discussion about um, about drug policy. And talk a little bit about the external impacts on what's gone on in Colombia from international organizations, whether it's Human Rights Watch, the UN, or other NGOs, and, and what impact, if any, has that had on what's going on in the country? Yeah. I think both international and domestic NGOs have played critical roles in uh, telling the truth about what's been going on in the country for decades, uh, even some of its darkest moments, uh, even when the paramilitaries were rapidly expanding and nobody uh, in the in authority in Colombia wanted to recognize that um, these groups were out there, and that includes the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, it, it includes Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, and, and it includes, like I said, many, many Colombians who uh, have taken tremendous risks to tell the truth about what happened in their country, um, even though all the pressures were in the opposite direction for them to just go with the flow. Uh, and that has meant that it couldn't all be papered over and that, you know, some degree of accountability has been possible um, and that everyone didn't get away with all of their, um, all of their crimes. Uh, but again, I think that we do face some bigger picture questions in the country about um, how do you keep this pattern from repeating itself. And has it had, has some of the danger and some of the, the, the corruption spilled over into neighboring countries? That's, 
what I can say is that I think similar patterns emerge in other countries where the drug trade is a major factor. So, for example, in Mexico, uh, again, you have so much money fueling organized crime. And organized crime has this enormous capacity to corrupt authorities and or to intimidate. Um, and it makes it very, very hard to control things. Same thing in Afghanistan. Um, people know that the war there keeps grinding on, but people don't talk much about how big of a factor the drug trade is in that country and how it gives huge resources to both the Taliban and um, warlords and people on the other side. And again, makes it very difficult um, to pursue the rule of law or democratic accountability or anything like that. So, you know, in terms of neighboring countries, it's more complicated. I've heard uh, stories about groups cropping up over the border in Ecuador. Um, in Peru, you know, which is another coca-growing co country, whenever you've seen efforts to really um, cut down on coca production in Colombia, it tends to just move over to Peru uh, or to Bolivia because that's how it it works. It's, the business goes where it's cheaper and where, it's, where there's less uh, pressure, um, but it always keeps working. Um, and, you know, there is a lot of talk about Venezuela and uh, the impact of organized crime groups in Colombia uh, also working in Venezuela. That's not something I've documented, so I don't know um, that much about it. Maria McFarlane Sanchez Moreno. Her book is There Are No Dead Here. A story of murder and denial in Colombia. Maria, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.